0: Is another full episode of one of our favorite podcasts, Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio, hosted by David Rothkop, produces new episodes two to three times per week and brings together top experts, policymakers, and journalists from the national security, foreign policy, and political communities. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you become a member of the DSR Network, you'll receive benefits such as ad-free listening via private feed, discounts to virtual events, and deep state radio swag, and access to the member-only Slack community. This is one of the most closely followed podcasts among the people influencing the most important decisions in Washington and worldwide today. You can learn more by visiting thedsrnetwork.com. Listeners to Words Matter will receive 25% off the regular membership price. Use code WORDSMATTER at checkout.
1: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Also, as is always the case at this time of the week, also coming from New York City, We have from NYU Law School and Just Security, Ryan Goodman. How are you today, Ryan? Pretty well, David. Thanks. And from Washington, D.C., as we always do at this time of the week, we have a former Obama White House official, Brookings um, uh, uh, scholar and uh, practicing physician, Dr. Kavita Patel. Hi, Kavita.
2: Hi, David. Good to be with you.
1: And we are joined today as our special guest by an old uh friend uh watch uh, that tim. old word no not no no you're not old because we're the same age tim um but uh, tim romer who is a former uh member of congress from indiana former u.s ambassador to uh india and a former uh member of the 9-11 commission which is one of the reasons that he is here although i always like to see tim how are you today tim
3: David, great! Always a pleasure
1: to be with you. I look forward to it. Um, great. Well, let's you know, let's kick it off. Uh, clearly, there's a lot of commission talk going on in Washington, and there's a lot of people saying we need to have a 9/11 commission. Uh, you've even written an article uh, about what lessons we can learn from the 9/11 commission. Uh, but this situation seems to be very different from the situation that we encountered back then. How would you distinguish the two, Tim?
3: Well, first, David, I think it's extremely difficult to create a commission uh, to write the legislation. I wrote the legislation to create the 9-11 Commission and had help from Senator John McCain on the Senate side. It was difficult to pass it. And then once you stand up a commission, then the hard work starts and the difficulty begins. Uh, How do you create a kind of culture of trust and respect How do you read the mandate and incorporate and integrate the mandate so that you can have public hearings and and have private discussions and get to the bottom of things? And then how do you make recommendations where you agree and you have to almost have a 10 to nothing vote and a unanimous vote to be taken seriously in Washington, D.C.? And then you have to hopefully have your recommendations passed into law which we were lucky enough to do in the 9-11 commission. I think we got 39 and a half out of 41 passed in the law. Uh, so those are very difficult standards to get to. And in this environment today, it's even more difficult to create a commission, to get uh, the leadership on board, to sign off on the legislation, to agree on what the mandate might be, the ratio of members, the subpoena power, and other things. So, you know, it's a roll of the dice. I've, I've spoken to... Uh, Talked with Speaker Pelosi several times and her staff about this over the last couple of weeks, and uh, you know, we'll see if uh, they can do it or whether or not, like most commissions, it does not get created and Congress has to do something. Uh,
1: okay, let's 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 pick up with a question from uh, of each of my colleagues here on this for you, and then we'll open it into a roundtable. Um, Kavita, let me let me go to you first if you've got a, a question or a comment.
2: Yeah I, I do. First of all it's great to to be with you and I I have to say not only is your career as a congressman but I think your work in India especially pushing both India and Pakistan that actually came up in today's White House press conference if you it, it Candidly, I hope that that continues to be a theme. I want to ask you. I'm the doctor on the show. Impressive sometimes.
3: credentials, here, Kavita. I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm. I'm, I'm <laughs> no, a little bit after all of the scholarship in your background here.
2: <laughs> and I'm a I'm a Patel, so you know you you know a little bit about my my roots and origins. But I wanted to ask you about taking some of the lessons, and I agree the articles, plural, that you've written about lessons learned from the 9-11 Commission. Can you, before January 6th happened, um, there have been, had uh, Speaker Pelosi and others, including myself, continue to call for something around accountability with the handling of the pandemic. I just want to ask kind of if you reflect and think about whether it's a commission, how would you chart a path forward for accountability? It's easy to blame Donald Trump, but I think this was a breakdown, by the way, that probably started candidly, even before the Trump administration.
3: Completely agree with you. Many of the trends that probably led into uh, 1.6, the attack on the Capitol, started uh, years even before Donald Trump. Let's talk about the technology, Kavita. I mean, the technology, we have Facebook and Google now engineering this specific technology. And I get out of my depth very quickly here, but in talking to experts, This technology uh, creates uh, and is run by algorithms that the more controversial the story, the more it gets picked up on the internet, and the more you then look into what you're interested in, the more you're going to be spoon-fed this different, you know, sometimes lies and conspiracies and disinformation. And it just picks up and feeds on itself and spits out more and more of the same kind of radioactive and toxic material that has taken over our political culture and made congress and our political system so difficult to work with them so that's one trend uh a, a, another trend uh, is just um you, you know you see this kavita and you work with it in the obama administration i go up to the hill all the time now members don't even know each other Mm -hmm. and their own own delegation, their own state delegation. They don't know each other. If you're a small business, 99% of US businesses are under 500 people, and you're a small Congress is over 500 with senators and congressmen. If you don't know the people you're working with in your small business, how do you function? How do you get things done? How do you build the kind of trust to pass legislation? So, you know, your, your calls to create a commission, I talked to a- Congressman Adam Schiff about a COVID commission several months ago, that has kind of uh, fell by the wayside, wayside temporarily. Now we're talking about another commission. Part of this is because Congress doesn't do his job of oversight and accountability. So they export this to an outside commission oftentimes. And now we have the problem of maybe they can't even create a commission to do this for section important
1: event as one six, Ryan. I know you've been uh, interested in this issue, and, uh, and of course, publishing uh, Tim's very good article at Just Security over the weekend is one way of, of of exploring it. But what 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 are your thoughts? Questions for Tim.
4: So I had a question about the importance that we place on unanimity within the commission. Let's say a commission gets created and the importance of unanimity among the commissioners in making major decisions or, or signing off on the final report. And I understand the importance of that for the 9-11 commission in the sense that maybe what you all wanted to prioritize were recommendations for structural reform in DC. And the extraordinary success you have with that is in part because of the unanimity with an evenly split Republican Democratic Commission. But I suppose my question is, if one thought that a significant concern for the um, 1-6 Commission is accountability and filling in the blanks that were left behind with the impeachment trial, for example, not relying on news reports of what the president did in the Oval Office In response to the events but rather um hard evidence of interviews and the like and document requests and and the like it seems to me for that maybe we do compromise on unanimity um and the lesson learned from the 9-11 commission is that unanimity did have its cost and the cost is accountability so i've just i've been digging real deep in some sense on the uh, 9-11 commission and so Phil Shannon's book, The Commission, he interviews Dan Marcus, who is the general counsel for the 9-11 Commission. And Marcus said, according to Shannon, quote, Marcus could see all the flaws in the commission's final report, especially its lack of accountability. Quote, we did pull our punches on the conclusions because we wanted to have a unanimous report, end quote. And then Ernest May writes um, a piece afterwards. And Ernest May was the commission's senior advisor, worked hand-in-hand with Zelikow drafting large swaths of the report. That's why it's partly such a beautifully written report. Um, But he said in his um, piece, in the, um, I think it's New Republic, he said, quote, composing a report that all commissioners could endorse carried costs. Individuals, especially the two presidents and their intimate advisors, received even more indulgent treatment. The, The presidents being President Clinton and President Bush. His idea, that, from his perspective, that the cost of unanimity, Was you were just that the commission was not going to get fingers pointed on terms of very specific uh, questions of accountability. Who made mistakes? Which president exactly got it wrong or could be held responsible, quote unquote, for for 9 11? And that seemed to be a perfectly good trade off if the end result is recommendations for structural reform that have benefited the country ever since. Um, But maybe that's the difference between the one six commission.
3: Well, let, let's, let's talk about this in a little bit more detail uh, because I think it's in a very, you, you, let me dig through what you've said and there are several fascinating things that we can try to excavate and talk a little bit more about. Uh, first of all, the commission pulling its punches. It, it's extraordinary in America that you can create this outside commission comprised of civilians. And, and empowered by our constitutional government, you know, the president and the Senate and the Congress appointed the members and it was passed and signed into law. So the power comes from our, our, our elected government. But here are these 10 civilians, no, no real power anymore. And they can sit down with former presidents of the United States and the current president of the United States And back to Kavita's question, hold them accountable. I can guarantee you, Ryan, nobody in those uh, meetings we had with President Clinton and President Bush pulled punches. We asked them really tough questions. And it was almost like each one wanted to ask somebody a tougher question once it went around the 10 members and then went around again. And then some of us raised our hand to ask more questions of the president's and to hold them accountable. And then your, 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 you know, your, your point about pulling a punch, it wasn't so much pulling a punch to get to the recommendations. Uh, it was, do we spend our time writing a lot about blaming Clinton and blaming Bush for this? Or do we spend more of our time productively? What does a DNI look like? What does the Director of National Intelligence Office look like? What does the new counterterrorism center look like? How do we actually get reforms in the FBI, which is a place that is very difficult to reform, and get to move from one mission of white collar crime to, you know, national security issues? There's where we spent a lot more of our time. How do we get the FBI and the CIA actually connecting the dots? Now we can spend our time trying to blame people and trying to, you know. Point fingers and write that up explicitly, or we can try to figure out from recommendations on how to reorganize our domestic government to new initiatives on Muslim outreach. We had recommendations across the board. Uh, Kavita, back to one of your points about Pakistan and India, I remember President Obama saying to me, one of your missions in India is to reach out to the Muslim population, which is the second biggest in the world with close to 200 million people, we want to reach out and show the values of America to all the people of India. Uh, And so, you know, this becomes a very tough balancing act, Ryan, to try to get that right on the commission. And it's easy for us to kind of slide into the blame game. Now on the unanimity question, uh, if we had come up 9-1 or 8-2, could we still have passed Half of our recommendations or a majority of them? Maybe, I'm not sure. Uh, We we were starting to see even in 2001, 2003, 2004, we didn't pass these recommendations for a couple years. Uh, When Nancy Pelosi came back into government, she was very helpful in helping us pass these reforms. Uh, And so was Senator McCain on the Senate side. Uh, It was difficult to pass these even with unanimous recommendations. And I remember vividly, we must have had five or six people, Ryan, tell us very explicitly, uh, both in the skiffs and the private meetings and then in public from Don Rumsfeld to Leon Panetta, you guys, if you split, if you come across as partisan, you will fail.
1: Okay, well that bring you know, we talk about not beating around the bush. Let's not beat around the bush, okay? The, here's the problem. One party is complicit in this. So, you know, it, to, to go and say we need to have a bipartisan commission when there are members of the United States Senate on the Republican side who were actively stirring up the insurrection, and the majority, almost all the members of the Republican Party, were actively promoting the big lie that led to the insurrection and the same is true in the House, you know, it becomes, you know, a a challenge. You know, how do you have a Republican Party whose leadership is responsible for the crime sitting in judgment of themselves? And, you know, we've already seen Senator McConnell yesterday saying, well, I think this should be about, you know, political violence in America. Well, of course, they want to go and, you know, have some Antifa conversation about Portland, Oregon, rather than the conversation that really ought to take place, which is who organized this? Who funded this? When did they organize it and fund it? Were there orders given down the line to pull back and let it happen? What was going on in the Oval Office as soon as they knew that this was happening, when they knew there were threats against the vice president and so forth? They don't want to have that conversation and i you know th- i it's hard to imagine that you could have a commission that was bipartisan that was actually impartial so how how do you deal with that tim
3: well it's really hard david to be honest with you we're 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 having a hard time writing this legislation and then reaching out to the republican side to Try to bring in people who will support it. Uh, look, um, the way you write this legislation, if you're going to pass it and if you're going to get to an investigation of 1 6, which we all agree is really important, you can either inflame the mandate and inflame the purpose in the legislation and say, you know, here are the groups we want to go after, here's what the president did. Here is what, you know, and and take it down that road. Or you can write the mandate in a way that says, you know, we want to look at the events of 1-6, what happened at the federal, state, and local level with intelligence reporting. What, what, according to uh, our FBI director, there is a growth in domestic terrorism, especially in white supremacist groups. How do we get to the threat there? Is it a growing threat? What do we do about that long-term? Was there government complicity in this from the executive branch to members of Congress or staffers? You don't have to explicitly mention names in the legislation, but a mandate written like that, David, has no wiggle room. You're going to have to ask the questions of what people did at that rally in front of the White House, what they said uh, what what they encouraged uh, uh, you know the entirety of it what members of Congress did so you can either not have a commission and you can come up with some inflammatory language and and come up with what you think are the results beforehand or you can write it more neutrally and still create the Commission, and have them inevitably by the mandate have to get at the very questions that you just outlined, which
1: are the essential ones. Uh, right, right, but, uh, but you know, the, 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 the problem is the point that Ryan brings up, which is you know, write it that way, get it through, maybe you get to that, then appoint people on the commission and the Republican party constituted the way that it does. It says, well, we'll just put this guy or this woman on it and they'll vote no, and they will never get to unanimity on this kind of an issue, and so you've got this sort of, you know, um, fix in with the jurors. You know, anyway, Kavita, what's what's what what well, do you can think? Can
3: I of? can I just comment on that? Sure. I, that that's absolutely, absolutely possible that that happens. That the, the the legislation I wrote to create the 9/11 Commission, the president got to pick the chair. If you remember, the first chair that President Bush picked because he was initially not in favor of creating the 9-11 Commission. We had to keep pushing it, keep pushing it. I had to peel off about 15 Republicans at the time to vote for the legislation to create it uh, over the White House's stringent objections. Uh, We did that and then Senator McCain had an easier time on the Senate uh, side getting it through. But uh, he initially appointed Henry Kissinger as the chairman of the 9-11 Commission. The 9-11 families, which were the moral force and suasion of our entire efforts. We don't succeed without the 9/11 families out there fighting away for the creation of the commission, admonishing us at times to be tougher, and then helping us pass you know the recommendations into law. They were incredible. One of the best experiences in my life as that, you know, that those several years working with those family members who I still keep in touch to to this day. But they protested. They went into Dr. Kissinger's office, met with him, and said, we don't want you to be the head of this commission. And the president backed off, came back with Tom Kane, governor, former governor of New Jersey. And on our side, we picked uh, Lee Hamilton. They created this culture of bipartisanship. I'll never forget it. One of our first meetings, David, Lee and uh, Tom say to one another, and then look at all of us, We will not do a single press conference apart from each other. Everything is gonna be joined at the hip. Both of us will be in the TV interview room. Both of us will be before the New York Times editorial board. We are gonna respect one another. We won't always agree. We're gonna have some battles, but that helped create this culture of listening to one another. And also to your very point, to the heart of it, David, the appointments that uh, the leadership made, the Senate and the Congress of um, the House of Representatives, they picked generally members like Jim Thompson, former governor of Illinois, uh, Slade Gordon, uh, former Republican from uh, you know, Seattle and from Washington State, uh, Lee Hamilton, who I mentioned uh, before, people who had worked together with Republicans in an era where we almost always work. David, you remember these days on national security when we always worked with Republicans on intelligence and national security issues. That wasn't that long ago. That was 15 or 20 years ago. And so everybody brought that kind of culture. We trust these people. We work with them. That isn't to say, Ryan, back to your point, we didn't pull punches in the skiff. Let me tell you we had some battles, all out rock and roll and battles about things and arguments. And most of them didn't spill over into the press or spill into the public meetings, but uh, it was a real culture of, uh, of, of respect.
1: You know, Kavita, just listening to this, and this is your new mission in life, I think. bit listening to this, it's, it, it sounds to me like we could get a better COVID commission than we could get a one six commission mm. because there are 500,000 victims. Mm-hmm. There are millions Survivors. of people mm-hmm. who've been touched by this. There is a political constituency that could be mobilized to demand the facts and that that would provide that suasion that Tim was talking about. I don't know what you think about that.
2: No, I, I that's exactly what I was thinking and I had read um, the ambassador, you and and I I knew Richard Benveniste. I know Richard Benvenista, you you had people who literally could put partisanship labels aside. Honestly, as you were talking, it was hard for me to think about how that I I think it's totally possible to find commissioners who can continue to do that. What I worry about, because I remember when your commission report came out, I mean, it was a bestseller, you know, literally it was a bestseller across the country People were myself tuned into the hearings because everything mattered. There has now been, I, I actually agree, David, I think COVID ironically would be easier to do. And I worry um, I worry, Tim that there's such cynicism that frankly, even I have about does this, does the Republican party, does anybody really want unity? It, it just feels like it's so far out of reach. And when you talked about the constituency, you're right. I worked for Senator Kennedy When we were dealing with the 9 11, you know, uh, we were dealing with the the firefighters and kind of the lung disease that they had had. Uh, So that was one of them. Yeah. yeah, So, you know, setting up the fund for survivors and EMS and responders who were literally killed and devastated by 9 11 in the aftermath. And that was so hard to do, but only possible because of the families, right? The families, President Bush himself, people leaned into that. hard for me to see how people are going to do that on january 6th i i about january 6th but you know hopefully you can correct my. john stewart
3: leaned into that john stewart uh, i remember that never let up he kept going and going and going back and shaming congress uh talking about it whenever he could publicly and and down in washington dc i i think one of the one of the reasons, as I said before, that the 9-11 commission ultimately was successful in so many ways uh, was because of those 9-11 families. These commissions have to have a a third party outside force that both holds the commission accountable to its mission and its, uh, its mandate and its remit and its purpose. Why are you folks here? And you better keep on knocking doors down. You better keep on using your subpoena power. You keep on you know, opening up drawers and finding things. We all know how difficult it is to pry information from people who have it in Washington, DC. And getting that information was difficult for us at times on the 9-11 Commission. But the 9-11 families would show up on a moment's notice come down on a plane or a train from New Jersey, New York, end up being in the senator, the congressman's office. I'll never forget a candlelight vigil at the White House when all these members are in their tuxedos going to the White House to have a party and they're standing outside in the cold with their candles and pictures of their loved ones that they lost, their sons and daughters and husbands and wives, and these members had to walk by them and justify their votes not to create a commission or not to go forward with doing the right thing. And here they are right in your face telling you, you better do the right thing. You have time to party and you don't have time to come back <laughs> and do your work, shame on you. And you know, that, that's the kind of thing that you know, mm-hmm. the COVID uh, situation with so many survivors, so many tragic losses, so many people that might weigh into the system that you you would hope that there would be the same concern about our democracy, because yeah. the larger mandate for the one six commission is not simply finding out what happened, how did this group penetrate the capital, how do we make the capital more secure. How do we share intelligence better? How do we do something about disinformation, lies and conspiracy theories? That's one part of it. The other part is try to make sure when you're building high walls and providing more guns to security up on Capitol Hill that you're not cutting off the access to the American people and that it doesn't become a fortress and a castle up there. And lastly, how do we reconnect the American people to their institution of Congress? People don't trust it like they used to. Trust levels in America and in democracies around the world are plummeting, in part due to the social media lies and conspiracy Mm -hmm. theories and so forth that are floating out there on everything. So what I've advised the speaker is, maybe there's a way to put a mandate in this like a de Tocqueville mandate. How do we strengthen our democratic institutions of government again today? Uh, they they're in some serious trouble, and uh, this is a this is a trend worldwide.
4: Ryan, and just as a point of clarification, the Dan Marcus quote on pulling punches was not at all about the fact finding or investigative work of the commission. No suggestion that, that at all, and in fact, is I think not inconsistent with what you described as there's a reason for unanimity to get these structural reforms through. It's not about he might use the word pulling punches, but it's about like, do we really wanna be focusing our attention on pointing fingers at particular individuals when this is what we can actually do um, (laughs) in a very significant way in terms of massive long-term structural reforms. Um, One other question that raises for me, it's kind of like, it's not the COVID versus uh, 1-6 Commission, but it's the 9-11 versus the 1-6 Commission that in some ways contrary to what David said that you might think that the 1-6 Commission has a greater likelihood of success because it's not necessarily gonna be criticizing the incumbent White House. Um, And the 9-11 Commission had that tension all the way through and Alberto Gonzalez not wanting to give you uh, the uh, presidential daily briefs and all sorts of blockades like that. Um, And the general in in charge of NORAD was not (laughs) uh, wanting necessarily to be scrutinized. And here, um, I think one of the, there's only one element in which, I guess there are two elements in which it might come up. So one is the executive branch is going to still try to have its prerogatives protected. Like they still might try to invoke executive privilege or the like as a kind of a baseline, no matter who's asking them for the information or no matter even if it's about the prior administration. But the other one is the FBI. I do worry about that a little bit because one of the big questions for the 1-6 commission is, did they drop the ball? Did they potentially suppress intelligence assessments about white supremacists because of political pressure from the White House or think questions like that, that at least are going to be asked. We don't know what the answers will be until it's all complete. Um, Could you talk a little bit about your experience with the 9-11 Commission in that regard? It seemed as though one of the serendipitous dimensions of it was that Bob Mueller stepped in as the FBI director right as 9-11 happened. Personally, he did not have anything to protect in terms of his own um, um, actions action. leading up to 9-11. And he seemed to have given you all an extraordinary amount of um, support and cooperation. There were even jokes about how much he would like. I think maybe one of the commission, <laughs> the chair of the vice chair said that he would even show up when you didn't ask him to. He was that you know cooperative.
3: <laughs> he was our loved commissioner.
1: <laughs>
4: yeah. So, yeah, if you could talk about the baseline, because I think that'd be helpful to even think about how we should. Hope for a similar um, relationship with the FBI when, if and when the 16 Commission gets uh, up and running.
3: Well, back to your question about the presidential daily briefs and getting access to those, Ryan. Uh, there probably could be a book written about this someday. We did, we did touch on it both in our uh, our public report and there's probably a classified report. Uh, with information in it and some warehouse in Washington somewhere too. Uh, but we did finally get access to those presidential daily briefs. We came up with a very uh, creative and unusual methodology to do it. And uh, over uh, initial White House objections and stonewalling, we got access to everything that we needed. And then publicly in one of the hearings, uh, Talked about what those presidential daily briefs said, and particularly the headlines in some of those. We asked Dick Clark about them. We asked Condi Rice about them. Uh, we grilled other people about them, both uh, in private and in public. So we did overcome some of those initial d- difficulties, but it, the the time, the amount of time that that takes, as you mm. know, to you know to to work out you know the agreement to subpoena or how they can stonewall even a subpoena for a long time and claim executive privilege on certain things. And then, you know, so it goes on and on, but we finally did get access to them. The FBI, Bob Mueller, I think was in the job one or two days, actually, maybe 24 hours. He still has a institution that he wants to protect. Uh, he, he is a, a, a realist and, and an institutionalist. Uh, he's a terrific guy. I have a lot of respect for him. I do uh, believe that the FBI needed to be reformed uh, top to bottom. And we had several you know, drag, drag out conversations about this as well, too, with on, within the commission Do we go for total reform, which will be really hard to implement and get the FBI to do? Do we carve out a new national security bureau within the uh, FBI itself? Uh, What incentives do we put in to try to make sure that uh, uh, they change their mission from white collar crime and the mafia to now national security and terrorism uh, internationally? And how do we recruit better people? Uh, that uh, don't all look like me uh, to be going around the world uh, trying to get information uh, that we have diversity, we have better language skills, we have better sharing with other intelligence departments. Uh, Some of the people in the FBI kicking and screaming about those reforms. And I remember uh, actually, I'm not sure this story has been told and Senator Slade Gordon uh, passed away not too long ago, but Slade and I were working on the language up until the last week of our commission report to finally get something that all 10 commissioners could agree with on on the FBI and that we thought could work. And we thought that Bob Mueller uh, could implement, not that he would particularly agree with what we were recommending. He might not like it, but at least it was something that could work and make the
1: FBI work better. Kavita, follow up? Additional thoughts?
2: No, just that um, you're reminding me that part of what we're going to have to do is think through, uh, well, we have, you know, finally a president who's kind of reconstituted a lot of the national security infrastructure. But to Ryan's point about kind of understanding, you know, things don't just happen overnight. These are, as as you put it, years in the making, if not longer. And it points to kind of the need for something that constantly comes up as a theme in terms of kind of government reform. In the Obama era, it was um, then uh, OMB director Peter Orzag trying to cut through red tape and, and you know, reduction of unnecessary government, etc. The theme might be kind of coming out of COVID. It's just making me think, David, that Tim's reminding me that coming out of all of this, it might be um, how are we making sure that our government infrastructure, whether it be congressional branch, executive branch, et cetera, kind of have accountability? You know, we, we put in these ombudsmen and we put in these kind of personnel. C- clearly, that's not working or it's it's not achieving the goals of what people need in a 21st century. And and in a way, it's just it's making me think we really need to kind of modernize uh, all aspects of, of kind of our, our government. And by the way, this rings true with conversations we've had um, around Supreme Court and term limits. And there's, there's probably a, a very long list that won't make the cut in any legislation, but should be a priority.
3: So I think that's a fascinating point, Kavita. Let me take it in a different direction with a maybe an association to 1-6. Uh, if the president, uh, President Biden, can do an infrastructure bill, And that infrastructure is is traditionally defined as bridges and roads and Mm -hmm. flyovers and all kinds of different projects. Why not try to define some of that infrastructure as uh, election security infrastructure for accountability? (laughs) One of the biggest problems we had coming after the election that fed into the lies and the conspiracy theories were that some states like florida counted their votes their early votes and their absentee votes before election day pennsylvania prevented that from happening Mm -hmm. and so they were counting all these votes after election day which feeds into these lies and conspiracy theories that well trump was ahead in pennsylvania but then the votes trickled in for days and days Why not with some infrastructure money for election security, not only on the cyber side to protect our integrity of our elections from outside attacks, why not try to incentivize our states on best practices to do these kinds of election administration things that build trust in our system, that count votes early, and we rely more as the trend Post-COVID is going to be on early voting and not just voting on election day. How do we try to secure this system with technology, with incentives, and with infrastructure, modern infrastructure for the most modern democracy on the face of the earth? How do we set the standards for other democracies in the world to do this the right way? I think that's something President Biden could, mm-hmm. you know, could, could definitely you know, try to get into an infrastructure
1: bill. Well, if he's willing to do it unilaterally. I mean, the reality is there is one party out there that is taking a stance that's anti-democratic. There's going to be a CPAC meeting this weekend in which they, you know, sort of underscore that, you know, Trump's the man. He was behind this. There's something like 256 different pieces of legislation across the country right now undermining voting rights, Um, and there there are a lot of people in the Republican Party who are actively associated with anti-democratic things, including this big lie. And so if you were to do that, they would see that as damaging to them.
3: Well, to counter that though, David, uh, the Democrats in the House and the Senate have HR1 coming up, I think, next week or the week after. Where within HR1, uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, uh, uh, provisions to uh, prevent gerrymandering in the future and have commissions in states, there's all kinds of election integrity issues. And I think if we can keep our moderate uh, Democrats, uh, that will pass the House, probably on a roughly party line vote. That would address some of the issues that you've just mentioned in Georgia where the state legislature, instead of expanding opportunities for Americans to get access to vote, are restricting more opportunities, especially on Sunday mornings, for the African American, the Black population to vote. They're trying to restrict that window uh, for people coming out of church and parishes to go legitimately and honestly go vote. How do we fight back of that? Uh, I think we've got the legislation to do it. The Senate becomes a totally different ballgame. I think that HR1 bill gets broken up probably. Uh, People like Joe Man, Senator Joe Manchin, uh, Senator uh, uh, Kristen uh, Sinema, uh, people like Senator Murkowski uh, uh, and others become key voters on, can you package some of these things from HR1 on the Senate side, uh, particularly on voting rights and uh, election integrity? and get something passed through this this Congress that uh, is just gonna be, you know, it's gonna be a battlefield every every day, every moment.
1: Yeah, no question about it. And I think, and I'm gonna give Ryan the last question here, but I think the only solution I can think of is that you move to West Virginia and run for Senate <laughs> and Kavita moves to Arizona <laughs> and runs for Senate and we get rid of the filibuster because until that happens, we're stuck. And the reason it passes the House is because it can pass the House on a party line vote.
4: Mm-hmm. I've
2: run six times. I'll help you. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, you, you got this down pat. I
4: might
3: not do it again. I will see.
1: I'll yeah, help we'll see.
3: We'll see how yours goes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. All right, Ryan, last question or comment.
4: Um, I guess I just wanted to ask you something that you started out with talking about that if the 1-6 Commission doesn't get st- uh, stood up, then we're back to congressional investigations. And if you could just kind of tell our listeners about what the difference really is between the kind of political power the, or legal power, but the, the authority that an independent commission has compared to uh, congressional investigations and there's my understanding is from the 9-11 commission, there's some very concrete examples because there was an attempted investigation on the congressional side beforehand. And they did not get to do things that you all got to do. They they didn't get Condi Rice to come talk to them. They didn't get the uh, presidential daily briefs by way of some example of, of the significance of the two things. Um, but if you could talk about that a little bit, I think it could help people to understand why so many people are focused on this in Washington right now?
3: Well, that's a great question, Ryan. I go back uh, to the days I served on that joint inquiry between the House and the Senate. The, the House and the Senate formed a joint inquiry into 9-11 comprised of the intelligence committees on the House and the Senate side. And when we had people like Dick Clark uh, meet with us and in uh Uh, secure meetings uh, which were banned uh, to the public. And Dick Clark said things to me at that point that he had written a memo to the Bush administration warning about this happening. Uh, That really lit me up. And uh, that's one of the reasons why after six months, seven months of the joint inquiry, that wasn't enough. We needed more time. We needed to look across government, and that's why I said we need legislation to create a 9-11 commission to follow up on some of the good work that the joint inquiry did, but they did not go far enough. There's a lot more out there we have to investigate. So we did. We created the commission. We created uh, you know, recommendations, and, and miraculously, <laughs> after our conversation today, we got something done. Congress, on the other hand, you know that's their constitutional responsibility. We remember uh, Senator Harry Truman uh, did procurement oversight hearings, accountability hearings, Kavita, to use your term. He looked into the preparedness of troops uh, for World War II and, and just found all kinds of issues and problems, used the gavel of his chairmanship brilliantly I think it was one of the reasons why Senator Truman came to President Roosevelt's attention and was picked uh, as his vice presidential candidate. Robert F. Kennedy, before he became a Senator, one of my heroes in life, uh, before he became a Senator was a staffer. And, uh, you know, he did racketeering hearings and oversight hearings uh, on, on, uh, on a host of different issues. Uh, when you walk into the Senate Russell room, there's a plaque in that room. Kavita, you work for Senator Kennedy. Uh, you, you've seen it a million times. I think it's it might be the Kennedy room now. Uh, yeah. It know, it's, it, it's wonderful. And there's a plaque about all the different hearings that took place in that particular hearing room. Uh, I think the Titanic hearings, all kinds of oversight and accountability. So Congress inherently has this power they could put committee hearings together to look into many of the things with oversight like Henry Waxman used to do and John Dingell. They were masters of accountability and oversight. The possibility is there, but look at what we have. You know, We have a fragmented Congress. We have oftentimes hearings where one party won't show up if the other party is doing something that they disagree with. And then you have the problem of getting information. And then you have the problem of, let's say we have hearings, we have discovery, we get to facts, we put together a bill. Will that be able to get through Congress at the end of the day with the split we have
4: mm-hmm.
3: to yep. make the recommendations to fix things? So if the speaker and and uh, majority leader in the Senate, Mr. Schumer and Mr. McConnell, Mr. McCarthy decide, they're not going to do a commission and it falls into Congress's lap to take this on. You might worry, you know, the, the the dog has caught the bumper of the car now and you're responsible for the car. Let's see what you do with it. You guys, will you, will this blow up in your face? Will you get some things done or will this make Congress once again, look dysfunctional and, uh, and, uh, and partisan, and lose trust in the institution even more in the future. So they've got a big gamble on their hands up there. I think Mr. McConnell, Mr. McCarthy should look at this very carefully. If they don't want to create this, there's some real downsides to not creating this too. A lot of risk involved in this. Democracy really is at stake here, I think, in many ways. We have to find some vehicles to make recommendations to strengthen this representative democracy that's 250 years old. And as Lincoln said, will it long endure? Will it endure? And we are, we we came at a precipice on January 6th. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, well, that's a a great uh, comment to end this on. I'm incredibly grateful, Tim, for you joining us with the possible exception of the fact that uh, since we are contemporaries, when I think of the fact that you may be um, a relic of a bygone era that doesn't reflect very well.
3: Don't call me a dinosaur, <laughs> David. Yeah,
1: <laughs> doesn't reflect very well. But 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 we, we we certainly need more people like Tim Romer. I've known that for a long time. I'm sure all of our listeners agree with that. Uh, your insights are incredibly valuable, and I take a lot of heart from thinking that you are speaking to the speaker and others about how we might tackle this at a moment as you say, that is enormously um, precarious for the country and requires some healing.
3: Well, Ryan and Kavita made me look good with their their insightful and intelligent questions. And David, you and I, as you said, go way back. I have the utmost and highest respect for you. Uh, You and I uh, have lunches together and lots of laughs and talking about family and uh, politics and uh, uh, i'd be on your show anytime and i'm just hopeful if i'm interesting while
2: i'm doing it
1: well no you're fantastic and we'd love to we'd love to uh have you back and the idea of having lunch together is an interesting and novel notion. i know
2: in person in yes. person yeah it's like we it's, used to do it not anymore yeah. we it used have to happen. two we weeks have to. after your second dose you can do it <laughs> i like your
3: positivity
1: uh yeah well, we'll, well let's let's aim for that later this year and have you back again as well. Uh thank you Tim, thank you Kavita, thank you Ryan. Thank you to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of what we've got coming up um uh over over the the the, the weeks ahead go to the dsrnetwork.com by all means go to where it says membership sign up. Uh, members get access to uh, content that others don't including uh, every week, a one-on-one where they can pose questions. Next week, we're going to be uh, with our special guest and our longtime friend, Rosa Brooks, about her book, Tangled Up in Blue, which is a must-read. Um, and um, uh, and every Sunday, we've got uh, now Deep Thoughts coming out, which is uh, insights into the week past and the week ahead. So membership at thedsrnetwork.com. Thank you everybody for uh, joining in this great discussion, and we'll see you all soon and, and take care of yourselves. Be safe.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio, hosted by David Rothkopf, produces new episodes two to three times per week and brings together top expert policymakers and journalists from the national security, foreign policy, and political communities. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you become a member of the DSR network, you'll receive benefits such as ad-free listening via private feed, discounts to virtual events, and deep state radio swag and access to the member-only Slack community. This is one of the most closely followed podcasts among the people influencing the most important decisions in Washington and worldwide today. You can learn more by visiting thedsrnetwork.com. Listeners to Words Matter will receive 25% off the regular membership price. Use code WORDSMATTER at checkout.